Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. First book of the New Testament, Matthew, chapter 23. We're continuing to learn about these Pharisees. I will begin reading at verse 25. Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. May God speak to us through his precious word. Well, a couple of our church families have been on the receiving end of great mercies from the Lord in these last uh, days and uh, in the brief afternoon service. We want to remember those mercies together as a congregation and to praise him for it. I trust you could stay for that. Imagine coming to my house for supper and you are really quite impressed as you glance into the dining room and see all the sparkling china that I've set out for you. But when you sit down at the table, you're horrified to see inside the cups and dishes all the leftovers from what I've eaten over the past three months, right out of the slop bucket. Disgusting mess. You'd lose all appetite to eat. And even so, our Lord Jesus is disgusted by the so-called righteousness of the Pharisees, which is really Filthy rags in God's sight, slop bucket, rottenness, not righteousness at all. Now, we've been studying in Matthew 23, uh, Jesus' last words to the crowds gathered there in the temple as they gathered from near and far to come to the annual festival of Passover. It's the last words he'll have with the crowd before he's crucified. And he takes this opportunity to give a withering exposure of their spiritual guides, the Pharisees, their hypocrisy, their false religion by which they were leading others to hell. So Jesus condemns them with seven woes of judgment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. We've seen four of those woes, and today we're going to consider number five and number six because they really put their finger on much the same problem. The problem 
is their thought that the outside is all that matters. Or in the words of Matthew Henry, the Puritan pastor and Bible commentator, they were all for the outside and not at all for the inside of religion. But according to Jesus, all true religion is heart religion. If it's not heart deep, it's empty. It's worthless. And indeed, here we see it was hypocritical worship. And Jesus saved his harshest words of judgment for these men, for their heartless religion. So the fifth woe pronounced by Jesus is found in verses 25 and 26. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and indulgence. Think slop bucket. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. So their religion had a certain appearance outwardly of respectability and righteousness, but inside it was really rottenness and not righteousness at all. And we've seen that in our study, haven't we? Their fastidious attention for the outward forms of religion, Bible study, prayer, fasting, tithing, and then all their many man-made rules that focused on getting the outward performance right, outward correctness, outward ceremonial purity. And so... They condemned Jesus and his disciples for not kowtowing to their extra rules and interpretations. And more than once, it had to do with their failure to wash their hands before eating. Let me give you an example from Mark's gospel, chapter 7, the first four verses. It says the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. Kids, it's not just talking about you're outside and your hands are dirty and it's time to eat so you wash up. No, it's something different. And Mark further explains for his non-Jewish readers. He says, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. So when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now, the rabbis had heated discussions and debates about the intricate details of just how this washing of dishes was to be done. And Jesus ignored the whole mess, would have nothing to do with it. When they took him to task about this, Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain. Their religion, their teachings are but rules taught by men. So though Isaiah was writing 700 years earlier, he could not have described you Pharisees more clearly, where God says, outwardly, with your lips, you appear to be honoring me, 
but inwardly where I can see, your hearts are far from me. So back here in Matthew 23, uh, Jesus refers to such washing of dishes. And he does it to castigate these these Pharisees for their intricate concern about outward ceremonial impurity while having no concern about inward moral impurity of heart. Verse 25, he says, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. So you guys have your cups and dishes all washed clean with this ritual ceremony you go through. But what's inside them? What's on the inside of the cup and dish? He's talking about real food that they put inside of these uh, dishes and cups. Well, it was morally defiled food. It was the slop bucket. It was rottenness. It was food that they got by greed and extortion. And it was food that would be used in self-indulgent excess. Let's look at these two vices of the Pharisees that Jesus is putting his finger on. What's on the inside? Well, greed. He's talking now about how they got this food that they put on the inside of their cups and dishes. Other translations round out the meaning of this word for greed as extortion or the actual plunder that that they got from robbery. That was what's in their cup. Their plates, the food that they actually were eating. In Luke 16, Jesus was warning in that whole section against the idolatry of worldly wealth. And he concludes that section by saying, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And Luke says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. You ever been sneered at? They sneered at Jesus because he had exposed their inward idol. They were lovers of money, not lovers of God. And so they sneered at Jesus, and Jesus responds to their sneers saying, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Men think highly of your religion and your righteousness. God says it stinks, it's rotten, it's rotten food because of the way they got it. He saw their detestable love for money in their hearts that as a master leads them into sin to get more of it. It was greed, that that ever desire for more not content with what they had, greed for financial gain, any way they could get it. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees in Mark 12, 40, you devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Therefore, you will be punished more severely. So their greedy hearts took them to widows' houses to pray for them. And, and, and they were long prayers to show just how concerned they were for these widows. Which, of course, Jesus says was just a mask 
to show, hiding their real motives. And what were they? They wanted to prey upon them, P-R-E-Y, to prey upon them, to plunder them, to devour their houses by extortion so that when they went away, they had more money than these unsuspecting older widows could afford to give. It was as easy as taking candy from a baby, we might say, showing just how low they would stoop in their greed. That's how they filled their clean cups and dishes with rotten food. It was food gotten by extortion, robbing widows, slop bucket righteousness in their fine china. And TV preachers praying on the elderly with fixed incomes will have to answer to God for it and will be punished more severely, according to Jesus, for using religion as a means for financial gain. So that's the first word he uses. What have you got in your clean dishes? Well, you've got, you've got greed and extortion and stuff that you've robbed. The second word in verse 25, it speaks of how that food was to be used by them. And here the word is self-indulgence. Other translations have excess, lack of self-control. Eating and drinking too much of what's in the cup and the platter. Perhaps even to drunkenness and gluttony. Serious matters, serious sins in the eyes of God. It was love of self, you see. Self-indulgence. Whatever self wants, that's what I will do. Self had replaced God and love of God. And here they are, ever so careful not to be contaminated with outward ceremonial uncleanness from contact with the Gentiles in the marketplace who might not have been keeping all the, the ritual ceremonial laws of what's clean and what's unclean. Maybe they touched a dead body or a couch upon which a body had lied. And, and so I might get contaminated. Oh, I must be very careful. And so I wash before I eat after coming in contact with Gentiles in the marketplace. But what I'm eating is morally unclean food, food gained by extortion, food used to excess, to indulge their flesh. So once again, they're straining at gnats and they're swallowing camels. They're straining at ceremonial uncleanness and swallowing moral filth. Fastidious about the outside while careless about the inside. So then we have Jesus' word of correction. There's his, his, his assessment of what's going on. And now his word of correction, verse 26. Blind Pharisee, you don't see clearly. You, you don't see at all. You're blind. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. No amount of your ritual purifications will ever make you pure in heart. So first clean the inside, and then the outside will be clean. So think of a beautiful stream that used to be full of trout and bass and is now polluted by the factory just a bit upstream, which is pouring its waste into the stream. And so healthy plants and fish are dying. The stench is putrid. Well, the factory starts, initiates a, a program with their employees to clean up the mess and, 
And they employ all kinds of measures to replant healthy plants and to restock it with healthy fish. And they get volunteers to sign up to clean up a mile of the, the stream on either side, picking up trash, dead fish, and fallen trees. And all the while, that hidden pipe just continues to spew its pollution upstream into that river. They're not dealing with the hidden source of pollution, just trying to clean up the outward effects. How futile, we say. And Jesus says, that's what you're doing. You need to first clean up the source of pollution, the inside, and then the outward stream will be clean as well. Remember Mark 7, where they were so concerned that they might get defiled from food that they would touch with their hands that it might defile them? Jesus answers them in Mark 7, nothing outside of man can make him unclean by going into, into them, into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Thirteen wicked things. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So how, how futile to be all about cleaning up the outside when, when you've got a, a, a fountain of pollution within you that you're not concerned about at all. If the inward heart is bad, the outward life may appear good, but it will be bad. Oh, but if the heart is first purified, then the life also will be purified. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What comes out is what's in. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the hands move, the body acts. So first clean the inside, then the outside will be clean. More on that later. Let's move on to the second, the sixth woe. And it addresses much the same concern about outward and inward religion. Verses 27 and 28. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, this, these two verses hardly need explaining. They are so clear, aren't they? And the illustration that, that Jesus gives is so clear. But I wonder if you're familiar with Decoration Day in the South. An old tradition where whole communities get together and clean up the cemetery and decorate the graves. I mean, it's a big thing to them, far beyond what we northerners do on Memorial Day. Um, I remember, I've only seen it once, and we were traveling in the south, I think it was Alabama, and all of a sudden we came upon a cemetery. It looked more like a tulip farm in Holland. The color was just exploding. The whole place was not a grave without flowers. It was gorgeous. Decoration day. 
Well, in a similar way, each year before Passover, about a month before Passover. You know, at Passover, the, the, the population in Jerusalem would swell to about 10 times the population as, as p- pilgrims came from all over to keep Passover. So a month before Passover, the Jews would whitewash the graves, the tombs. Whitewash. What's that remind you of? Reminded me of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. You remember? Every summer, you had to whitewash the old fence. Why? Because it was rotten, and the wood was no good, and it, it, it was turning bad. It looked terrible, and so Tom and Huck would have to whitewash it with some cheap paint that would last for a couple months, and they acted like they were having fun to see if the other kids would want to do it, and then they did, and so Tom and Huck could leave and, and leave it with them. But the whitewash, you see, it was, it was nothing. It, it didn't fix anything. Underneath, it was the same rotten fence but it was just a little dress-up. That's what the Jews did with the, the tombs, the graves, with the lime whitewash. And so as Jesus is speaking to them, just a couple days, a day before the Passover meal, they're very familiar with whitewashed graves. They've, they've seen it on the way to the temple from wherever they've come. And Jesus says those whitewashed sepulchers look so beautiful on the outside, but you know inside they're full of putrid dead men's bones. The epitome of everything unclean. That's you, Pharisees. On the outside you appear to people as righteous, but inside where God sees you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus is pointing out that with these men There's a huge difference between what they appear to be and what they are. Under the thin veneer of a painted, respectable religion is found the most disgusting things. And once again, he mentions two. The first, hypocrisy. They're full of hypocrisy. Indeed, we learned early in chapter 23 that everything they did in religion was done to be seen by men. It was just an act job, an acting job. They were pretending they had a mask. It was their religion, their respectable religion. They were wanting to appear righteous to others rather than to actually be righteous from the heart, to be pure in heart. And that's why Jesus renames them in this chapter. You know, they were known as Pharisees, and Pharisees means the separated ones, the holy ones. That was the name they went by. And in this chapter, six times Jesus gives them their true name, hypocrites, actors, because the outward appearance is all that matters to them. The second word is wickedness. I don't know what your translation says. In the Greek, it's it's the word for law with the negative prefix, which just means no law. Without law. What, what, a, what a deceit. These are the teachers of the law. These are the ones who, who boast about having the knowledge of the law and being teachers to, to, to guide the, the, the foolish peons that are under them, the people. They know nothing. But we, we know the law of God. And Jesus strips the mask away and he says, you teach the law, are without law. 
You have no law. You despise God's moral law, the only standard of true righteousness, that by which all men will be judged. You don't have that law in your heart. Indeed, your minds are hostile to God, and it shows it, Romans 8, 7 says, by not submitting to God's law. Neither indeed can you. So under their whitewashed, respectable religion is murder and adultery and theft and lies and coveting and abandoning parents in need. Oh, yes, some of the greatest wickedness throughout history has been perpetrated by religious people. So don't be deceived. It's possible for those with hearts full of sin to appear very righteous. That was the Pharisees, and Jesus is warning the crowds that day, and he's warning us through the Scriptures today. It's a book that comes to us with the same authority on that day 2,000 years ago. He is warning us. Don't be deceived. Don't be majoring on what only looks righteous and minoring on real purity of heart. Now, why did they do this? Why did they externalize religion? Well, there's, there's, there's several reasons, but let's just consider it's because man looks on the outward appearance. Isn't that what Samuel is told by the Lord? Man looks on the outward appearance, and that's the only audience that the Pharisees were playing for was man. But though man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart, and here is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and he sees through the outward appearance, and he exposes them for what they are. Men can be deceived. God cannot be mocked. For even if these Pharisees managed to forget it, they were indeed living before the gaze of God 24-7. He missed nothing. And Jesus Christ is coming back to do what? To judge the secrets of men's hearts, the Bible says. So as long as man remains the primary audience that one is living for, well, the main concern will only be for that which appears to be righteous, because that's what men see. Oh, but if we're more concerned about what God sees, then we'll seek first to get and keep the heart pure. And in so doing, our outer life will be pure as well. There's a man who wouldn't think of going into an adult bookstore if someone he knows should see him. But when he's in the privacy of his home, he'll click on those pornographic images. He shows he's living for the wrong audience of man and not God. He, he, he cares how he appears to men, but not how he appears before God, whose gaze he always lives under. That's Phariseeism. That's hypocrisy. And that's what Jesus is exposing in this chapter. So what have we learned today from the Lord Jesus? You know, he's been speaking to us. As I said, he speaks to us no less than he was speaking in Matthew 23 to the crowd at the temple. This is a living word. Your word is spirit and life. It's living and active. It, it, it's not like we're just reading about what Jesus said. No, he's speaking to us. And those who hear his voice are his sheep. So what have we learned from Jesus today? Well, we've learned that all true religion is heart religion, haven't we? 
That's been the point Jesus is driving home. A man or woman can immerse themselves in all the externals of religion and still be lost. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They and they only will see God. That's the meaning. The heart, what is it then? If we're talking about purity of heart, first clean up the inside, the heart. What is the heart? Well, it's the mind as it thinks. It's the affections as we desire, love and hate. And it's the will as we choose this, but not that. Altogether, it, it makes up the, what the Bible calls the heart. It's the, it's the control center determining all that you do. And the problem is, of course, that we're all born with a bad heart. We come into the world with a bad heart that spews out bad thoughts, bad attitudes, bad words, bad deeds. And so Jeremiah tells us in chapter 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I know a lot of things that are awfully deceitful. I think of the devil, the father of lies. But this says that there's something even more deceitful than the devil. And it's the human heart as it comes into this world. It is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can even understand it? We deceive ourselves. And that's why Jesus says, first clean the inside. First get a new heart, and then the outside will be clean. Because the heart is the problem. That's the polluting fountain. And so don't ever think about cleaning your life up until that heart has been changed. You know, the Bible likens the nature of the sinner's heart to the nature of a pig. P-I-G, a pig. A pig that loves to wallow in the mud. There was a song we played for our children when they were younger, written by Judy Rogers, and it, it went like this. Isabel is a pig with a ring in her snout. You can dress Izzy up, but you can't take her out. She will jump in the middle of a big mud puddle since Isabel is a pig. That's, that's Isabel's nature. And so, so you can dress her all up. You can, you can put a bow on her. But the first big mud puddle she sees, she's going in. Why? Because she's a pig with a pig nature, a pig heart. So 2 Peter 2.22, Peter says, A sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. And that was the Pharisees' religion, and anyone who followed the religion of the Pharisees, just come and clean up your life, work a little harder at obeying the commands. No, they just plunged right back in to wickedness because they never changed the heart. The Pharisees' religion was all about cleaning up the outside while leaving the inside unattended, whereas the gospel way of change always begins in the heart. God changes us from the inside out. He gives a new heart inside, and then by His Spirit, He works it on out in our life. That's the way all true religion works. 
In other words, we need a heart transplant. A heart transplant. Every one of us. Children, you need a heart transplant. That heart will take you to hell. It's spewing out bad things. It's saying, go this way and not God's way. You're born with your back toward God and your heart toward sin and self. That heart has to be changed. You need a heart transplant. That's what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 18. He says, rid yourselves of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? You're headed to destruction. Why, why will you go on? Get a new heart. Get a new spirit. Your heart must be changed. It's only the pure in heart who will see God. Now think how different from the pig is the nature of a cat. Have you seen a cat sitting on the porch licking itself? As soon as it gets any little bit of uncleanness, it's all about cleaning it up. So contrary to the the pig who's looking for the mud. The, The cat seems to have a different nature, a different heart. So the only way to really clean Izzy the pig up is to put the heart and nature of a cat into the pig. A new nature, a new heart. And that's what Ezekiel's telling the Jews of his day. Yes, very religious. But you need a new heart, a new spirit. Okay, Ezekiel, but but how do you get a new heart? We can't change ourselves. We've tried. No, you can't, but God can, and God does. Later in Ezekiel chapter 36, 26, and 27, God says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart that that heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws You see, the real change of behavior in obeying laws starts with a change of nature, a change of heart and spirit. It's it's as supernatural as creation. You can't change your own heart. God must change it. And it's called a new creation. It's called a new birth. No amount of human effort or ritual can ever give you a new heart. Only God by His Holy Spirit It is the supernatural work of God. You are dead in your sins, Ephesians 2 says. And a dead man can't give himself a new heart. You need God to come and speak life and give that new heart to you. Well, that's awfully humbling for a Pharisee to admit. And there's enough of the Pharisee pride in all of us that many still stumble over that. You mean that I'm dependent on God to be right with God? That's exactly what I mean. You're depending on God to give you a new heart or you'll never get one. You need Jesus Christ to give you righteousness or you'll never have a righteousness that will stand up in the day of judgment. You are you're dead meat left to yourself. It's only God who can save you. And give you the new heart. You know, in John chapter 3, there was a Pharisee, interestingly enough, named Nicodemus. And Jesus, in his conversation, he comes to Jesus at night. We don't know why, but 
you do know that the Pharisees hated Jesus from the very get-go. So Nicodemus is wanting to learn more about Jesus. And yet, he doesn't want his cronies seeing him show interest. So I do believe that's the best explanation of why he comes to Jesus at night. It's mentioned twice in John's gospel. It was at night that he came. So here he is at night, and he, he starts out and says some kind words to Jesus, and right out of the, the gun, Jesus said, unless you're born again, Nicodemus, you will never even perceive, understand, see the kingdom of God, much less enter it. Nicodemus, Jesus tells him in this account, you are the leading teacher in Israel. And the leading teacher, leading the people, says, well, what do you mean? You, you don't mean I can get back in my mother's womb and be born again, do you? He's totally unaware of the need of man to have a new birth. And he's the teacher of Israel. No wonder the people were in such a dismal condition. These are their teachers. They don't even know there is such a thing as a new birth. Ezekiel spoke about it. Lost friends, you must be born again. You need a new heart, and only Christ can give a new heart. Come to him confessing your bad heart. That's a good place to start. Own the fact that you have no righteousness of your own to stand before God, and that your heart is that polluting fountain and pipe, and that you need God to give you a new heart, and plead that. Plead it from his mercy, confessing your sinful heart and asking for a new one. Trust in His blood, Jesus' blood to cleanse you. For the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses from all sin, even heart sins, even hypocrisy sins, even neglecting Jesus' sins. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and what? Purify us from all uncleanness. There's the purifying work that you need done. It's, it's God's work. And only then, with a new heart, will your outer life truly be clean and purified. For the same grace of God that appears to all men, Titus 2 teaches us, the same grace of God unto salvation that has appeared to all men teaches us then to, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. The same grace that, that changes your heart will change your life. The same grace that changes your status in heaven from condemned to righteous in God's sight. That same grace will, will teach you to say no in your lives to worldly passions and self-indulgence. You see Jesus' emphasis. So get the inside changed and the outside will follow. Brothers and sisters, this word is for you and for me as well. What will we do with this word from Jesus? The message is the same. All true religion is heart religion. And when Jesus says first clean the inside, that word first is a word of priority. Make this, make this your priority, Christian. Your priority concern, the main business that you're about 
Make sure it's your heart, your heart, and not just your outward religion. Oh, how we need this. How easy it is for our heart just to revert back to just being concerned about being at the right place at the right time with the right people doing the right things, and we go through the motions, and our hearts can be far from us. So is purity of heart your priority concern? We say, how would I know? Well, you're not content just to be baptized and a member of a church. No, you want your heart more and more like Jesus' heart. You're not content just to come and attend church and say, okay, I've checked that box. And it all happens too easy as we slip into this going through the motions of religion. No, that won't do for you. Your main business is the heart. You want to meet with God. You want to have heart-to-heart dealings with the living God. That's why you're here. You want to worship him in spirit, not just the body in the pew. You want to worship him as God is looking for worshipers who worship in spirit, spirit to his spirit. God is spirit, and you want to have dealings with that God from the heart. You want to have your heart searched by his law and warmed by his gospel. You want to have your heart shown to you and changed, brought that you might confess and might have it changed from the inside out. You want Jesus' heart. You want to love like Jesus loves. You want to desire like Jesus desires. You want to think like Jesus thinks. You want to choose like Jesus chose. You want to live like Jesus lived. And this transformation of heart and life begins and is carried forward by mind renewal. We get a new mind, we get a new heart, but then that mind needs to be more and more renewed. We still have so much of the world's way of thinking. We were that world. And so Romans 12, 2 says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It starts with the mind. And so this book is everything to you. I want to be renewed. I want my heart, my mind renewed that the whole of my life might be transformed. And so you're going to be here when God's word is taught and preached and you're going to read it and memorize it and meditate on it. You're going to, to receive it in the love of the truth because you want the word of God to change your inside and then to change your outside. Is heart religion the priority of your life? Then as Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart. Above all else. There's a lot of things to guard against. There's the world trying to... But, but above all else, guard your heart because out of it is the wellspring of life. In other words, what's in the heart is what comes out. So guard that, that wellspring of the heart. It's the fountain from which the entire life flows. So as goes the heart, so goes the mouth. As goes the heart, so goes the eyes. So goes the ears. So goes the hands and feet and all that you are. So goes your time, your money, your actions. So we guard our hearts, not letting the things of this world defile our minds and pull our hearts away from Christ. You're careful about what you look at. 
what you listen to, what you take into the ear gates. You know, the heart has ear gates and eye gates. And so you're, you're very careful to guard what's getting in to the heart through those gates. You keep a jealous eye on your heart. Do you ever ask your heart, where have you been today, heart? You know, we're busy all day long, and, and we ought to come back at the end of the day and say, now, heart, where were you today? What did you drift toward? Where, where did you wander? What paths did you go down? The heart. Where have you been the last two hours, heart? Have you been engaged in every song that we sang, in every prayer that men led us in prayer, in the Word of God as it's taught? Heart, where have you been? Because that's true religion a relationship of heart to heart. We must guard our hearts lest we find ourselves just giving to God the husks without the kernel. You know what he's after. Give me your heart, he says. Give me your heart. I trust we don't miss the heart of Jesus in this hard-hitting passage. Is it not a wonder that Jesus wants your heart, my heart, Does he know what my heart is like, even even as a Christian? Does he know the thoughts that go through that heart, the attitudes, the the desires? Give me your heart. There's the heart of Jesus beating in this passage. True religion is heart religion. I'm after not just some performance of you. I'm after you. And if I have your heart, I've got everything. And so I want to leave you with that. He's given us his heart. Shall we withhold ours from him? You know how bad he wants your heart? He complains when you're not giving it to him. Revelation chapter 2. He, he sees and, and he complains when you're no longer loving him with that first love. Now, that's a a husband who wants more than just a quiet, comfortable relation. He wants your heart. That's the Savior, you see. So behind the Pharisees, behind them honoring him with their lips, but, but their heart being far from, let's give him our heart. After all, he's given us. You know, David's way of guarding his heart against hypocrisy and and living as if the outward is all that matters is is Psalm 139. If you've got any problem with uh, this matter of of seemingly dealing more with just outward actions that we go through rather than really focusing on the heart, I would just encourage you to to read and read and read and and memorize Psalm 139. It's, It's the way David dealt with his straying heart. To remember that, oh Lord, you have searched me and and you've you've tried me. You know me. You know when I get up. You know when I go out the door. You know when I come back. You know my thoughts before I speak a word. You know it all together. And and so with this vast uh, chapters telling about the vast knowledge of God of, of our hearts, David comes to the end of it. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my mind. And And see if there be any offensive way in me. You know, that's what sin is. It's offensive to him. 
Oh, God, I don't want to be offensive to you. See if there be any offensive way in me. And show it to me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me out of those snares that lead to death like we memorized this week. Lead me in the way everlasting. I've, I've said before, you can be guilty of the sin of hypocrisy without being a hypocrite. And one of the ways that I think you can discern it, I don't know that a hypocrite could ever pray from the heart that prayer of David, search me, O God. He doesn't want his heart searched. You might be guilty of hypocrisy like I am. Yet if we pray, search me, try me, because I don't want to be that. I want to have a heart that's pure before you. That's a good sign. So would you join me in singing, Search me, O God, and try my heart, standing as we sing from the overhead. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is living and active. It searches the hearts and the intentions of the heart, the motives of the heart, the thoughts of the heart. And so we thank you that... uh, when it exposes sin, that we are not left to gravel and grovel in our sin, but that we are led to Christ and we have a Savior who died for sin and that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just. You would have to deny yourself not to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Make us those people that pant and hunger and thirst after righteousness, after true religion, after a heart that reflects the very heart of our Savior. Lord, search out those that are, are still with a bad heart and make them to long to be right with you. Lord, give them a new heart, even as you've done to many of us here.